Well, the other day I was in the uh, kitchen with my wife, and, and I asked her a fun question. I said, hey, if you could go anywhere in Gainesville to eat, like any restaurant, where would you go? And uh, the answer she gave, uh, one of them wasn't surprising to me. She said Hana Sushi because she loves sushi. That's like her death row meal. But she also threw out uh, embers. And that was actually the, the restaurant I had in my mind when she asked me that. And I don't know if you're familiar with Embers. I've actually never been there to eat. I've been there once to grab a gift card. Uh, it's a very uh, nice restaurant, but it's, it's a steakhouse. And as, a, as an Iowa boy, I love me a good steak every now and again. And I, but I will give a fair warning to every college guy right now who's like, all right, well, that's my next date night. Uh, be ready to pony up. It is not cheap. And I've looked at that menu. But, but I, want you to, I want you to imagine with me that you're on a date at Embers, and you're sitting down, and you're looking at the menu, and after you exhale, you're like, okay, we're doing this. You think, I'm going to go big. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the 20-ounce ribeye. I'm, gonna, I'm going all out tonight. And so you do it. You say, all right, 20-ounce ribeye, and you're sitting there talking with your date, and you're really not paying attention to the conversation, because in the back of your mind, you're, you're going how good is this steak really going to be? Is this, this is going to be amazing. This will be a life-changing event for me. I'm sure of it. And so 20, 25 minutes go by, 30 minutes, finally the waiter comes and he's got both of your plates and your date's not cheap. She ordered the same thing. So it's like, okay, we're doing this. And, and they put the plates down and, and, and it's covered with this silver lid thing and, and they pull it off. And on your plate is not a steak but rather is dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets with a side applesauce. And you're looking at your plate going, that is a kid's toy away from a Happy Meal. How did we get here? If, if, if you were there, they, op- they, they pull the thing off, and it's not a steak, but it's, it's chicken nuggets, what would your response be? You'd probably not only be a little disappointed, you'd be a little mad, a little frustrated, a little angry. You know, I want to talk to the staff, I want to talk to the manager here. Because you just, you're, you're paying big bucks, and they come out with dino nuggets? Like, that's, that's what you get. I think it's just true in general for us as humans, uh, this is a truth across the board, that frustration and disappointment typically comes from unmet or mismet expectations. We expect one thing, something else comes, and in that gap, is frustration or disappointment. And like Ellie said, this morning we're talking about Palm Sunday. And I just want you to think about that scene for a second. We're gonna talk about the triumphal entry this morning. We're gonna take a pause from our First Corinthians series. And, and as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, people are shouting, Hosanna, they are so excited Jesus is coming. They're celebrating. But then within a week, they're not celebrating Jesus, they're crucifying him. And I just want to ask the question, where was the miss? What, what was the mismet ex- expectations? What happened where, where they got to that spot within a week? And so this morning, I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about what the, the, the Jewish peoples, what their expectation of Jesus likely was, talk about how that wasn't met, and then the ripple effects of that reality, and then what it ultimately means for us today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, I'll give you kind of a brief summary uh, or or just some context here. The second half of the book of John, which really starts in chapter 12, really zooms on, zooms in on the the Passover week, uh, the events leading up to the cross and resurrection. And what happened right before chapter 12 
in chapter 11 is that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had died and then Jesus came and rose him from the grave. So now Jesus and Lazarus are walking around, hanging out with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. And in the first 11 verses, we see the anointing of Jesus at Bethany uh, with Mary and Martha. And then what we see in verse 9 is that the crowd is starting to swarm a bit. There's starting to be some buzz in the air because of Jesus and this Lazarus who's dead and is now alive. And then verse 10 and 11 says that the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, became more convinced that they need to kill Jesus. And now on top of that, now they also got to kill this Lazarus guy because he's walking proof of the power of this Jesus man. So that's, that's the whole context, and what I want to do is I just want to read the, our whole passage this morning. It's 12 through 19, and we're going to dive in. It says this, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. So again, this this account is typically called the triumphal entry. It's actually in all four of the gospel accounts. It's a pretty popular passage, passage, especially obviously on Palm Sunday. And what was happening is that at this time, the Passover feast, pilgrims would come from all over the place to Jerusalem to, to, to take part in this festival together, and Jesus was doing the same thing. I actually grabbed a a map of kind of the path of Jesus as he goes from uh, what was Jericho uh, into Jerusalem. So so he's at Bethany, that's the anointing at Bethany. He's there about a day with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, and then he heads to Bethphage, and this is where he grabs his donkey, and then he heads in, passes the Garden of Gethsemane, heads into Jerusalem, into the temple area. This is the scene that's kind of unfolding in front of us. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's a large crowd waiting for him. They're very interested in Jesus. Why? I think there's a couple reasons. One, likely there's a lot of people that have been probably hearing about this Jesus of Galilee who's been doing all these crazy things, and now he's coming to Jerusalem, and they want their opportunity to come in front of this Jesus and proclaim him as their Messiah, their their Savior. So that's probably one crowd. And then the other crowd, like we talked about, verse 17 and 18, there's a crowd that was was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, and they were testifying. So there was a lot of people that were with Jesus in the midst of this and witnessed the Lazarus event, and they were also coming to, to get another glimpse of Jesus or get more time around him. But when Jesus comes, as he's walking into the, the city, everyone's shouting, Hosanna. So we've used this word now a handful of times this morning, What does this word Hosanna mean? What is Hosanna all about? Well, you got to go to the Old Testament to to get this clue. It's in Psalm 118, 25 and 26. This is what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So that word 
Hosanna is a Hebrew expression for save us, save now, please save. And on top of that, they are waving palm branches. What's the What's the whole significance of palm branches? Maybe you're coming into this morning and you're like, why do we call it Palm Sunday? And why palm branches? Well, palm branches was very symbolic in nature. What, what it communicated, what palm branches communicated, it was a sign of victory, of claiming victory over your enemy. And so what were the Jewish people claiming victory over? What was in their minds at this time? And very simply, it was the Romans. At that time, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation and were under the labor of Romans, the oppression of the Roman people, and they were sick of it. They were tired of it. But, but now there's this Jesus, and they're wanting him to be the Messiah who establishes God's kingdom in the land. And when they think establish God's kingdom in the land, they're thinking overthrow Rome. So they're thinking through a very political or military lens, and they're, they're hoping that this Jesus will come and bring them the independence that they're looking for. And on top of that, Jesus, his literal name, Jesus' name means the Lord saves, or God is salvation. So they're shouting, Lord, save us, Hosanna, to the right guy, the one who saves. So they're thinking, okay, well, this is, this is it. You'll, you'll give us what we need. You'll take out Rome for us. And what's interesting is if you read the book of John, the whole time Jesus is letting them know, this isn't why I came. But they just missed it. They were still hoping that this would be true. They'd literally just seen somebody raised from the dead, and now they're thinking, well, maybe now. Maybe now is the time he's going to overthrow Rome and turn it upside down and conquer them as our king. And if we slow down for a little bit here and just put ourselves in their shoes I think we'd begin to empathize a little bit. If you think about being a Jewish person at that time under Roman occupation, all you've known your whole life likely is, is just being underneath the oppression of the Roman rulers. Everything around you, you're tired of it, you're, you're sick of this thing going on, but then you hear about this Jesus guy. And you're hearing he's doing these miracles. He, you hear he's got this incredible teaching there starts to be some buzz around this Jesus guy, and then, and then he raises somebody from the dead, and you go, there's no way. There's no way. But then your friend tells you, no, I saw him. His name's Lazarus. He's walking around. He's with Jesus. And you think, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. And then on top of that, it's the Passover feast. It's the Jewish people's, it's their biggest festival. This is a big deal. So the anticipation is coming. They're feeling it. And then all of a sudden you look up and, and outside the outskirts of Jerusalem, here comes Jesus. And he's riding in on a donkey. And you're thinking, this is the moment. God has finally come. His, God's anointed one has finally come. He's going to rescue us. And I'm telling you, as I thought about that moment, if I was in their shoes, I would be thinking the exact same thing. I would be ecstatic. He's here. He's finally come, and he's going to save us. The Jewish crowd was receiving Jesus with joy and celebration. It was an incredible moment. But if you know the story of Jesus, something's a bit off. Because we're in chapter 12 right now, and in chapter 12, they're shouting Hosanna. But then you skip forward to chapter, chapter thir or 19, and they're not shouting Hosanna. What are they shouting? Crucify him. How do you go from a spot 
of celebrating this guy coming in on a donkey, throwing down your palm branches to five days later saying, kill him. Just kill him. What happened? Why the dramatic shift? Well, let's go back to our text. Something we haven't unpacked yet is verse 14 and 15. Jesus rides in on a donkey. What's the big deal here? Well, the big deal here is that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years earlier, specifically Zechariah 9, about about this humble shepherd king who comes into the holy city of Jerusalem. I I have it up on the screen here, Zechariah 9.9. says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, Jesus, as this king figure, is coming in Jerusalem and he's riding riding in on a donkey. What you have to know back then is that when a, a conquering king would come back into a city, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. Actually, oftentimes they would send a messenger ahead to let the city know the king had done his thing, there's victory in the land, and now we get to celebrate. And so the big barbecue is happening. Man, we had a men's event this past Friday. There was so much amazing smoked meat and the smells of the places you walked in. And and that would have been the whole city. It was just like a huge barbecue. Everyone's excited. There's buzz. The king is coming into town. And then he finally rides in. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's not quite like this, but if you've ever seen Aladdin and the whole Prince Ali song and the elephant, you know, probably something like that. And actually, the more exotic, the better. That, that's what it was all about. And, and the animal that you rode in on had huge significance, huge significance. So let's do this. Let's talk about the horse family for a little bit. Kind of a weird side trail here, but we're going to do it. And I spent some time studying horses, which was a unique thing to study out. But uh, I, there's apparently, well, we know this. There's three kind of categories of horses that we typically think of. And I brought a picture. We typically think of a horse, a mule, and a donkey. And so maybe if you can't remember what those look like, you know, there's the faces of each. And, and even like some small differences between the two. Guys, this is a little embarrassing. I didn't know this at first. I, I think I knew this. I got to kill my pride. I don't know if I knew this, that a mule is just a cross between a horse and a donkey. Do you guys all know that? Am I the, okay, I heard yes and some people go on no, so I, it makes me feel a little better. But, but it's, a, it's a, let me get this right, female horse, male donkey, and that's what makes a mule. Actually, fun fact, mules cannot uh, reproduce on their own. They, if you want more mules, you got to get more horses and more donkeys to, anyways. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of, the mule's kind of like the, the, like the golden doodle of the, the horse family. You got to cross the two breeds to get the one. It's just not as cute. And so, so those are the faces of the three, but I didn't get a good picture of the bodies of the three, but I think in general we know that the horse is the biggest one, and then comes the mule, and then, it com- then comes the donkey, from biggest to smallest. And then also with that, the, the horse is the strongest, then the mule, and then the weakest is the donkey. There's a reason that when we measure power in a car, we call it horsepower and not donkey power. <laughs> That's, it's not, although sometimes it feels like my Honda Accord has donkey power as I drive through Gainesville. But those are your three options. And if you're a conquering king, which one are you going to pick rolling into town? 
You're picking the horse and the biggest, strongest war horse you could find. You're going to roll into town on a horse. And actually, if you go, well, if not a horse, then actually, if you go to the Old Testament, what King David often found himself riding in on was a mule. So if you're Jesus and looking at the three options, you go, well, for sure you want a horse. But if not a horse, at least pick what King David picked, the mule. But no, Jesus picks the donkey. He rolls in on a donkey. Why? It's so anticlimactic. It's not exotic or extravagant at all. In fact, I'm sure people are maybe just a bit confused. But this is very intentional. I mean, Jesus is God of the universe. He could have rode in on a lion if he wanted to, but he chose a donkey. And what he's doing here is he's signaling his messianic identity. There's a ton of symbolism, not only in, 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 in filling the, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, but there's also just symbolism in the animal itself. Riding in on a lowly donkey, it communicates humility, gentleness, peace. Jesus is communicating something about his kingship, even in the animal that he is riding in on. So put these two realities together. The crowd expected a conquering king, and Jesus rode in on a donkey, not a horse. So, so that's all swirling. And then on top of all of that, what does Jesus do once he gets into Jerusalem? Did you catch it? What's he do once he, get, once he gets into the holy city? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. He, he doesn't grab a sword and rally the troops and start an attack. He doesn't give a powerful speech. In fact, he doesn't even start flipping tables and clearing the temple. That's not until the next day. He walks into Jerusalem Everyone is shouting Hosanna, and he just walks away? <laughs> How anticlimactic is that? If you're a Roman soldier and you're watching this all unfold, the Jewish people are getting excited. Some guys just raised someone from the dead, and now he's rolling in palm branches. They're shouting him as king. I'd probably have one hand on, on my sword, ready to fight, ready to go. And then Jesus rolls in, gets off his donkey, and then just walks away. You'd probably, if you're that Roman soldier, it'd just feel weird. You'd probably just feel confused. What in the world is Jesus doing? Well, I want to be clear. When we're, at, when we're asking the question, what is Jesus doing here? He is, yes, very deliberately fulfilling the Zechariah promise, the promise in, uh, prophecy in, in Zechariah 9.9. He is claiming to be king of Israel. And, and to the Jewish people who knew their Old Testament well, they, they should have connected those dots. And quick side note, this is why it's so important for us to read our Old Testament, to be able to connect the dots. God is calling his shots from hundreds of years prior, and he's fulfilling it as Jesus grabs a donkey and rides into a town. Everything is connected. So Jesus, yes, is saying that he is the king that the Bible predicted. He is just not the king that the Jewish people expected. And we see this all throughout the book of John. Jesus is doing things and saying things on one level, on a very spiritual high level. And people are just hearing it and misinterpreting it at a very different level. And there's just always this miss. There continues to be this misunderstanding of Jesus, of what he's saying he came to do. The Jewish people, they expected a great military leader like King David. They wanted Rome dismantled. They wanted God's kingdom to come in that way. And yes, Jesus came to save, but not by killing, but by being killed. 
He didn't come to defeat a political power. He came to defeat sin and darkness. Instead of striking down the Romans, he laid down his life to be stricken. And instead of overthrowing Rome, he threw his life down voluntarily on a cross. They expected a Zechariah 9 king to come and make a huge splash, grab the sword, and give them their independence. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't meet their expectations. They didn't have a category for what he was doing. So they concluded this must be He's not doing what God, what we thought God would do through him. Therefore, he must not be from God. And therefore, five days later, Jesus ends up on a cross. Crucify him. And you might, you, you might hear that. I looked at some different commentaries, and, and, and different people said, well, it might not have been person for person. Every person that threw down the palm branches was the same person that shouted crucify him. I go, I think there's some validity to that. But, but clearly, the public opinion had shifted. From look how awesome this guy is, to put him on that cross. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about mismet or unmet expectations. To me, this happens all the time in my marriage. Well, it's a Friday night, and, and we'll even get on the same page with what we're going to do. We're gonna, movie night. We're going to do a movie night together. And, but we get to the movie night, and in my mind, I'm thinking action movie. And in her mind, she's thinking romantic comedy. <sighs> And just miss. And all of a sudden now there's tension and frustration. Or I have not, I'm telling you, I have ruined not only one, but multiple fancy embers-like meals because of conversations that I brought into the table. We would come into the fancy meal, and, and she'd come in going, awesome, finally a date night. We can have a light conversation, have fun together, and laugh together. And I come to the table, and I go, great, now let's evaluate our marriage. Let's talk about this. How can I grow as a husband? How can you grow as a wife? As I, it's embarrassing. I actually, oh man, I screwed up. Our, I, we got engaged that night. I screwed up. That, uh, that's a whole other story. I've done this multiple times. I got to stop. But the truth is, like I said, frustration or disappointment typically, or if not always, comes from mismet or unmet expectations. The Jews thought that the Messiah would come and establish an earthly political kingdom, that he'd come on a war horse, not on a donkey. They had seen Lazarus raised from the dead and thought, if he can do that, he can save us. Clearly, Jesus can free us from Rome. But Jesus had a different plan. He's still king, just not the king they expected. They wanted a king of the land, not king of their lives. And they were not expecting a humble king to hang on a cross. Just didn't meet their expectations. And I'm telling you, I believe the same is true today. I believe some people are ready to follow Jesus as long as he meets their expectations. I'll let Jesus be my God as long as he gives me what I want and what I expect. But the reality is Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. So what happens when he doesn't? What happens when you don't get the test grade that you were praying for? When you don't get the job that you wanted? When marriage isn't going as you had planned. When your bank account isn't what you want it to be. When that health trial just simply will not go away. When you keep waiting for that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that husband or that wife. I remember in my late 20s, uh, still being single, not married, going, where is she, God? Am I doing something wrong? What? Just being frustrated. 
when we keep waiting on God to do what we're expecting to do, how do we respond? If we're being honest, if we're being really honest, we always want Jesus to meet our expectations. We think things, whether we say it out loud or not, like if Jesus rose from the grave, then surely he can do X, Y, or Z for me. Surely he can save me from my singleness or this financial situation. We want him to do what we want, but what happens when he doesn't? Because yes, we are promised eternal life, but we are not promised that he's going to meet our every demand. And there's a lot of potential responses we can have when, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, but I think the greatest of which can be frustration and disappointment. What does that look like? I think it looks like someone stop, stop believing that Jesus is good and in his control. We stop believing that God loves us and maybe become a bit bitter towards him. We try to do it on our own. We try to fix it on our own. We don't like the path that we're going down, so we choose a different path, a path of destruction. Essentially, we become king of our own lives. And it's what the Jewish people chose to do. They rejected him. He didn't meet their expectation. My question for you is, the Jewish people had made their choice. What will your choice be? What will your response be? Whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, will you fully accept him or will you fully reject him? Because ultimately, you're either all the way in or you are all the way out. You, you cannot have half of Jesus. Listen to how Tim Keller puts this. He had a Bible teacher named Barbara Boyd. And at one point, apparently, this teacher, Barbara, said this. My name is Barbara Boyd. If you say... Come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd. That doesn't work for me. And in the same way, you can't say, come in, Savior, stay out, Lord, or come in, Helper, but stay out, King. She doesn't have some Barbara and some Boyd. She is all Barbara, all Boyd. You get all of her or you get none of her. And the same is true with Jesus. You can't Pick and choose what you like and then throw out the rest. You get all of him or you get nothing. He is both Savior and King. And this is what the Jewish people struggled with in John chapter 12. They loved the miracles. They didn't like the cross. They loved the idea of Jesus as King. They didn't like the kind of King he came as. They loved the idea of him conquering. They didn't like the idea that it was him conquering sin and not the Romans. But you can't pick and choose with Jesus. It's all or nothing. If you fully accept Jesus, you're choosing to fully submit to him as king of your life, which means your expectations might not always get met. But I'm telling you, Christian, we don't try to fit God into our expectations. We hit the reset button on our expectations. Jesus knows what's best for our good and for his glory, so we trust him. He sees the big picture. We cannot. He is God. We are humans. He is king. We are his servants. He chooses the path. We follow the path. William Lane Craig said it this way, because Jesus is king, he is not obligated to meet our expectations. If he chooses to give you a life of suffering, hardship, failure, or disappointment, he is Lord. This is my big, big idea for this whole morning. Whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, he's still king. Whether Jesus meets your expectations or not, 
he is still king. Now, some of you might hear that and go, amen, totally agree. Some of you might hear that and go, whew, feels a little heavy-handed. And so that's why I just want to spend the rest of our time answering this question. Why? Why follow this king? I'll give you a couple reasons. As I study out this text, this would be two reasons that came to my mind. The first is that this is a king who is completely in control. You have to understand the triumphal entry and ultimately the crucifixion was not an accident. Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was not riding into Jerusalem on this donkey with his fingers crossed, hoping for the best. Not only did he know what was about to happen, he was completely in control. And his disciples, they just, they didn't understand until after the resurrection. Go back to our text in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 all of a sudden made a ton of sense to him. They realized Jesus didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin. And as they thought about it, they realized, oh, which means he was in complete control the whole time. So we have a king who is in control. But not only that, but we also have a king who had laid down his life for us. Listen to the Pharisees' comment in verse 19. This is just interesting to me. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I think they were just a bit frustrated, a bit flustered, maybe some misman expectations. They were expecting Jesus to, to be dead by now or to fizzle out, but here he is, as strong as ever. And to them, it seemed like everyone was going after Jesus. But the reality is this. The world actually wasn't going after Jesus. Jesus was going after the world. John 1 the beginning of this whole book says the word, Jesus Christ became flesh, and his mission was to come and save the world. And the rest of the book, the rest of the book of John has a singular focus in mind. And, and John even gives his purpose statement towards the end of his book. Check this out in John 21, verses 30 through 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, listen to this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. You see, all throughout the book of John, Jesus is performing these signs and these miracles. Why? So that people would believe in him. All the way back to the very first sign in John chapter 2, turning water to wine at a wedding all the way up to the most recent sign in John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. Every single one of these signs was pointing to Jesus, saying, believe in him. But Jesus was not done yet. He had another sign coming. He had his magnum opus on the way. Lazarus' resurrection was miraculous, yes, but it was actually pointing to a greater sign. And not a sign that involves the physical life of one man, but involves the spiritual life to everyone who believes in him. You see, Jesus came to Jerusalem with a plan of victory, victory over sin and death. He didn't come to pour out God's wrath on the Romans. He came to absorb the wrath of God in our place because of love for us. I am telling you, we are all hopeless if Jesus does not go to that cross and rise from that grave. And I'm telling you, this is the reason... I follow Jesus. This is why I am all in with the king. 
It's because of the cross. It's the kind of king I want to follow, don't you? I, if, if I were to write out all of my expectations of Jesus on a, on a page, and likely it would be a whole scroll, but just a paid piece of paper, and I were to write out, here's my expectations of you, Jesus, all the way through the page, and I were to look at that page, and I were to look at Jesus hanging for me on that cross, you know what my response would be as I look at those two options? I would light that piece of paper on fire and run to King Jesus. He is worth it. He is worth everything, even if my expectations aren't met. The cross and the empty tomb are the motivation to follow Jesus. But check this out. The cross and the empty tomb are not the end of the story. It doesn't end at the empty tomb. And what I love about John 12 is it actually gives us glimpses of the reality of when our king is coming back. You have to understand, yes, Jesus rode on a donkey here, but make no mistake, he is coming back, and he's coming back on a war horse. Listen to Revelation chapter 13. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that... That, that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and that name is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is a day that is coming when the heavens will open up and Jesus doesn't come in on a donkey. He comes in on a white horse and he comes with fire in his eyes and crowns on his head and a robe that's dripped in blood. Christian, make no mistake, the conquering king is coming back for us and he will win. And on top of all of that, once he wins, what will be the response of every single saint that follows Jesus? Check this out in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with what in their hands? Palm branches. Palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There is a day coming, Christian, when we will grab our palm branches again, and we will lay them down at the feet of our victorious king. And I cannot wait for that day to come. Salt Church, we serve a king who hung on a cross with love on his eyes looking at you, but we also serve a king who is coming back and he will be victorious. And all I know is no matter what my expectations are in this life, that's the king I want to follow. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are our king and we lay down everything at your feet all our expectations, all our hopes, dreams, and desires on this earth that ultimately come to nothing. Jesus, you are king. You are sovereign, you are in control, and you are good. And Jesus, as we hear about things like the, the shooting in Tennessee, Lord, we, we just cannot wait for that day when you come back and make all the sad things come untrue. The day when you come back to make everything right, you come back on that horse. Jesus, we cannot wait for that day to come. But until that day comes, would we accept you wholeheartedly as Lord and King of our lives. We love you. We thank you for the cross. It's in your name we pray.
من 